Hello, Vetfolio voice listeners. Welcome, welcome. This episode is sponsored by Hills Pet Nutrition and features Dr. Amy Pike, who I was so happy to finally connect with. For a little while there, it seemed like fate was conspiring against us. On the initial date we were set to record this episode, the Vetfolio team found ourselves riding out a hurricane instead, and I'm happy to report that we all came through that excitement safely and finally got the chance to have this great conversation. In this episode, we discuss the link between food and stress reactions like anxiety in our patients. We go over some of the ingredients used in calming foods intended to help address stress and associated GI upset, reasons why a pet may show anxiety around eating or be a picky eater, and how to help reduce stress in these patients. Also, just in time for the holidays, Dr. Pike offers up some excellent strategies for proactively managing pets with holiday stress. She's always a lot of fun to talk to and offers tons of valuable insight. Dr. Amy Pike is a native Arizonian and graduated from Colorado State University School of Veterinary Medicine in 2003. Working as an army veterinarian after graduation and taking care of military working dogs returning from deployment spurred her interest in behavior medicine. Dr. Pike completed a residency program and became board certified in 2015. She's the owner of Animal Behavior Wellness Center and was recently named one of the top veterinarians of Northern Virginia by Nova Magazine for the seventh year in a row. Dr. Pike speaks all over the world about veterinary behavior medicine, has been published in numerous veterinary journals, has conducted and published two scientific research studies, and is a contributing author in five clinical textbooks. She mentors four clinical behavior residents and is a clinical instructor for e-training dogs and the master's program in applied animal behavior at Virginia Tech. She's an advisory board member for Royal Canin, Fear Free, and the Animal Welfare League of Arlington. In her fairly non-existent spare time, she enjoys gardening and hanging out with her active duty army husband of 20 years, their 15-year-old daughter, 10-year-old son, and their menagerie, including Dobby, a seven-year-old Devon Rex, Ike, a six-year-old giant schnauzer, Scooby, a four-year-old mini schnauzer, Ginny, a two-year-old Airedale, Prickles, a three-year-old hedgehog, and Pavlov, a one-year-old Indian ringneck parakeet. Like I said, a really fun and insightful conversation. Let's go ahead and get into it. Well, I'm joined for this episode by Dr. Amy Pike and I'm very excited that we were finally able to do this recording. It was like the world was conspiring against us there for a little (laughs) while trying to get together. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Well, we're happy to have you. And we're talking about behavior and kind of behavior in conjunction with nutrition, which I just think is such a fascinating discussion about the relationship between behavior and nutrition. And so kind of starting off talking about calming diets. I have always just questions in my mind about calming diets, like how do they work? You know, how well do they work? What patients are they appropriate for? So can you talk to us a little bit about calming diets and like, and what kind of ingredients they have in them, what we would use them for? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it is interesting, the discussion of the sort of like the interconnection between nutrition and behavior. It's, you know, we've known for a long time that nutrition impacts behavior, but I think a lot of clinicians and myself included before I was a behaviorist don't really kind of think about nutrition as like a component, a behavioral treatment plan. So there are calming diets out there. Most of them do contain added levels of tryptophan and tryptophan is our serotonin 
serotonin precursor. So it's what we use from our diets in order to make that coping neurotransmitter. And then a lot of them do have alpha-cazozapine. So alpha-cazozapine is a protein found in cow's milk. So if you've ever heard of the saying of drink a warm glass of milk before you go to bed, the reason that that works is because alpha-cazozapine binds to the benzodiazepine receptors in our brains. So it has like a kind of a calming relaxation property to it. So it depends on the diet specifically that we're talking about, if they have both, just one, et cetera. Um, but then there are also, you know, the use, not just with diet, but like the use of probiotics uh, that we can do as far as kind of an intervention for anxiety. In particular, the bacteria Bifidobacterium longum has been shown to actually communicate to the brain via the vagal nerve to actually impact anxiety and decrease anxiety symptoms. And we've, there's tons of studies in rodents and humans. And now we have a dog study and a cat study that show that that particular bacteria can help. Well, I love that you bring all of this up because I'm very typical in that way of that sometimes nutrition isn't top of mind when we're talking about behavioral concerns. But you and I have covered this a little bit in the past of abnormal gut flora and the impact on behavior. And so with that in mind, why is it so important to consider nutrition in the context of behavioral issues? Yeah, it, it's kind of one of those chicken and the egg situations when it comes to behavior and like the gut, because if you have an upset stomach, it's going to make you more anxious, right? Because there's, you know, your tummy's upset, you don't feel good, you're irritable, but also anxiety oftentimes produces GI symptoms, vomiting, anorexia, diarrhea. So it, it is like this whole interworking of stuff that we need to address from both standpoints. Um, and I would say a large percentage of my patients come in with chronic GI issues. And we even do like a GI screening now where it's, we have them do a fecal score and like determine, you know, how often are they seeing diarrhea? How often do they vomit? Is it food? Is it bile? Is it, you know, what does their appetite look like? All of those kinds of things, because I feel like an internist some days where I'm just kind of treating all these, you know, undiagnosed GI issues whether it be through, you know, nutrition that can help probiotics or even considering something like a hydrolyzed diet um, and really kind of delving into the fact that there might be some undiagnosed IBS. Sure. Absolutely. I feel like I read, and I may be way off base here. So tell me if you're like, I've never heard of that. And I have no idea what you're talking about. I feel like I read somewhere and it was in humans about someone who I believe they were born without a portion of their brain, but there was a lot of things that they were still able to do uh, normally cognition wise. And part of that they attributed to a working gut, which is a, an incredibly oversimplified explanation of what I read. I haven't heard that, but it would not, I mean, it would not surprise me because I mean, our gut is 70% of our immune system. You know, there's just so much that our GI and our microbiome do for us um, that I don't think we fully understand. Absolutely. And the more we learn about it, I just think it's so fascinating because I, I feel like just personally, as I start to think about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, like I, I do kind of see how these things are connected in my own body. So I can imagine how that translates to to our patients. Absolutely. And and owners sometimes don't tell their general practitioners about this, right? Like if the dog has 
diarrhea a couple times a week, they're just like, eh, you know, it resolved on its own as far as they're concerned. Or, you know, a lot of my patients, they'll start with normal stool in the morning. And then by the end of the day, it's complete liquid. And so again, they haven't necessarily talked to their vet about this, but when we kind of delve into that history, it, it really, there's something there. Absolutely. Can you share a case where you, you know, it really kind of illustrated the connection between the brain and the gut? Yeah, I, I have a lot of cases, I guess, unfortunately, <laughs> that that there is that connection there, a couple in particular where, you know, we did do that history and, and the owners took time to kind of, you know, score all the feces and, you know, we did a thorough diet history and, and that kind of thing. And, and in both of these cases, I switched them to a hydrolase formula. I added on a high strain, like high strain count probiotic which obviously is going to help with general gut flora, but it also has that bifidobacterium longum in it. Both of these cases got significantly better sooner than they should have when we're talking about like psych meds or even behavioral modifications. So I do think that their gut was was significantly playing a role in, in their behavior concerns. Yeah. And it makes you think like chicken or the egg, were they, were their behavioral concerns coming because their gut didn't feel good or were they anxious and that was causing the behavioral problems? Let's talk about picky eaters because this is another like chicken or the egg situation that I'm always curious about. You know, I'm sure we have some dogs and, and cats who are truly just picky eaters. But one, how do you address those animals that are picky eaters and might not want not may not be open to incorporating nutrition and in part of their behavioral plan? And do you think in some patients the picky eater part might come from some of the behavioral issues? Absolutely. I mean, like you said, it is, it's another chicken and egg situation because anxiety suppresses appetite in most patients. And so most of my patients come in and the owners will report that they're picky or they're not treat motivated or whatever. And so we relieve the anxiety, then that actually improves significantly. But our, many of our psych medications suppress appetite as a side effect. And so I also have to kind of take that into account. So like Reconcile, which is the branded fluoxetine by PRN, they it the number one side effect is appetite suppression. So if I already have a picky eater, I'm not necessarily going to want to reach for that. Whereas it's known in humans that Paxil or paroxetine actually ramps up appetite. And so sometimes we'll use that medication instead in those patients because it can have that sort of normalizing effect to an already picky eater. But the other, the other aspect about this is there are conditioned emotional responses and there's learning that takes place surrounding eating. So eating is a trainable behavior. We actually can teach a dog to eat by rewarding them with other things. So whether it be like you get to play with your ball if you actually eat some kibble. Um, so that's something that we can actually work on from a training standpoint, which is kind of a new thing in the training world that we're realizing we can actually do that. And then there's a lot of emotion surrounded by eating too. So whether it be because the owners put a lot of pressure on the animal to eat, meaning like, okay, I put your food bowl down, but I'm going to pet you while you're eating it. You know, they, the owners think that they are, you know, trying to train away resource guarding, but actually that's really stressful for an animal to be interacted with while they're eating. But if like every time they eat their stomach hurts because, you know, they do have IBD or something like that, then there's going to be that negative emotional response to, ugh, every time I eat, I feel terrible. And now I don't want to eat anymore. So 
So it is, there's so much stuff that we have to really kind of work on when it comes to these picky eaters. And then the other thing that I just find so fascinating with animals is, and humans are the same way, but animals oftentimes prefer to work for their food. It's called contra-free loading. It's the learning theory terminology or ethological terminology. And dogs, if you put a bowl down in front of them and you put a puzzle toy, they would actually prefer to go to the puzzle toy to actually work for the food that's inside of it. This has been long known in zoo animals. You know, you can see, just go to, I was at the zoo this weekend, the National Smithsonian for their, because the pandas are going back to China. So I wanted to make sure I went and saw them, but all of the animals have puzzle toys and feeder toys. I saw Kong Wobbler in the panda enclosure and like, the, the animals do prefer to actually work for their food versus just flopping it down on the ground and, and giving it to them freely. So, so it's pretty cool. You can do that with dogs and cats. Cats are not as motivated by the contra freeloading, but they can do it for sure, especially if they were trained as young kittens to eat that way. Absolutely. I have that conversation with a lot of kitten owners who bring their kitten in if they're amenable to it, if they're like, listen, I don't want to talk about all this, but about, you know, train them to puzzle toys, get that hunting instinct going, give them something to do, exercise, mental stimulation, maybe change up the color, the shape of the food so they don't get you know, dead set on this is what food looks like. Uh, because yeah, cats can be, they can be a bit of a conundrum when it comes to. Yeah. They develop preferences really early and it, it typically is whatever their mom was eating, whether it be the type of food, the, you know, the brand of, you know, food that we're feeding or the type of meat and what they get fed out of. So like cats trying to put them on like a prescription diet later, cause they need it for kidney disease. If they don't like that shape of kibble or that, you know, protein source, it's going to be really hard to get them to eat that food. So, so giving them that variety initially is really important. Yes. They say, no, food is brown stars and those are red (laughs) squares and I don't eat red squares. I I eat brown stars. No, thank you. You're trying to poison me. Yes. (laughs) One thing I've always been a little bit curious about when it comes to these picky eaters is you know, certainly I myself have dietary preferences. There's things I I just don't like. I will say those things are few and far between. There are some foods that I just really don't care for. So when it comes to, you know, say kibble and things like that, do you, how do you approach that conversation with owners about, you know, maybe you have a dog who prefers canned food over kibble or, you know, a certain type of kibble. Like how do we go about making, finding out those dietary preferences without making them more picky? Yeah, it, it can it is kind of a balance. I mean, cause we can train dogs, especially to kind of wait out to like, oh, if I don't eat this kibble, mom's just going to put some shredded chicken on it, right? Like they they train us really well um, in that regard. And then they're like, well, I'm not going to eat unless you put this shredded chicken on it, right? But again, like if they were picky because they, you know, last time they ate this food, they vomited and then it's like, oh, I don't want to do this, right? Then we have to kind of give them potentially like a buffet and like let them make choices. Choice is everything with animals. Like they feel more in control when they have choice. And so if you like put down, all right, I want you to eat canned food because it's, let's say, better for kidney disease. I'm going to put down three options for you and let you choose which one you actually prefer. Um, That can tell us a lot of information and also give them some empowerment of, you know, I I can make a better choice than the ones that might be offered. Okay. That's good to know that, you know, giving them options and then that, that seems like a good way to kind of strike that balance with exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
Are there social or environmental triggers or experiences that might also contribute to being picky or not food motivated aside from, you know, the, the GI issues we were talking about? Like I vomited the last time I ate this food. Anything else we should be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the social dynamics in the household can play a role. Cats won't overtly fight over food. But if they have a conflict with another cat, they're not going to want to eat near that cat. And so they may wait until that cat is away or that cat also can learn, like, I can guard the food subtly, like just sit by the bowl all day. You know, if dogs uh, have noise sensitivities and their, you know, their uh, tags hit a metal bowl or a ceramic bowl and make a noise, that can shy them away from just eating out of that bowl. There's so much stuff that can kind of play that interdynamic. Most dogs don't want to eat. They're not actually social eaters. They don't want to eat near another member of their household to include sometimes their humans. The opposite can be true with dogs too. They will only eat when their person is there. And that probably is more like a less about a social eating and more like, okay, I'm anxious when you're gone. And so now that you're here, I can actually eat because I'm not as anxious. Wow. I never really thought about that as an anxiety behavior eating when their owner is there, but that makes sense especially considering the breeds that I see. do. That. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> little dogs are pretty notorious, you know, like you know, little poodles. Everyone's like, oh yeah, they're just picky because they're a poodle. Like, you know, they probably also have a high level of anxiety that's contributing. So they're just, like, they're just constantly vibrating like, Aah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they're Prozac deficient. <laughs> yes, absolutely. What are some of the nutritional management strategies or diet options for pets who live with stress or anxiety? Yeah, there's multiple out there, whether it be like Hill's ID Stress, uh, which is their normal ID formula, but it has the added alpha-cazozapine. Their CD MultiCare Stress Formula, which has added levels of tryptophan as well as that alpha-cazozapine for our cats that oftentimes have urinary issues in addition to their stress. Uh, there's Hills BD, which is designed for um, dogs with cognitive dysfunction. So there are a lot of different options out there. I have had a lot of luck with the CD MultiCare in my patients personally. And then I know I had my dog on BD for a little while and I felt like I noticed a, a big difference with her cognitive decline. I was a big fan of it. One of the things that I have heard with these diets is sometimes, especially like like if we're talking CD MultiCare, especially like with cats and things like that is oh, you know, they don't want to transition to a new diet, which we talked about earlier, why it's so important to condition cats to variety. What's something you would tell an owner that came back and said, you know, they just won't eat it? First and foremost, from a veterinary standpoint, is not trying to transition them when the animal's in the hospital, you know, because there can be that negative association between what you ate in hospital and didn't feel very good while you were eating it. And then you try and go home and you don't want to eat that, right? So making sure that we start that transition at home, if at all possible, that as well as, you know, we talked about the, the, the buffet earlier is like giving them those options so that they have, they feel like they have some choice and control in the matter. Sure. Absolutely. And I can picture, you know, we mentioned CD a couple of times, CD MultiCare, that that would be a really easy thing to say offer in a hospital because maybe you have a blocked cat who needs to be on fluids or something. And you're like, oh, you need a urinary diet, but maybe wait till, wait till he gets home before you try to introduce that. You know, the other nice thing about it is, as many of these pet food companies have developed, you know, is it a stew? Is it a pate? Is it, you know, what sort of protein source is it? So they allow some option within that too, because especially for cats, they are very, very particular. 
So going back to those picky eaters, if we decide we want to transition to a new diet, um, whether it's a calming diet or a hydrolyzed diet for GI upset, whatever diet we feel is appropriate for them, what are some of the tips that you would recommend to just help make that transition more successful? We have plenty of owners who come back and say, you won't eat the new food. But then when you look at the studies, there's a really good palatability rate. So how can we kind of bring that same level of acceptance of the new food into our patients? Yeah, I think number one, go slow. Owners oftentimes go way too fast with those transitions. I tell people it's not a five-day transition. It's like a two to three week transition to the new food, a little less of of the old, a little more of the new you may have to do things like toppers um, in the to kind of get them used to it. So whether that be like some grated shredded Parmesan cheese or canned food version of what you're trying to transition them to, that can help kind of the food motivation. And, you know, just again, kind of not putting a lot of pressure on the feeding experience. I think a lot of people just kind of stand there and like stare at their animal. Like, are you eating it? That can be really stressful for some people. I mean, I always equate it to like, if you go to a restaurant, you don't want your waiter standing at your table the entire time, right? Like, are you done? Do you want anything else? Are you good? Do you want something? Is is it not cooked to your perfection? You know, like that. Oh my God, please leave me alone. Right. So just leave the animal alone, give them their nice safe space in order to eat in a calm way. And, and then, And if you are struggling with that, perhaps we need to try a different version of that diet. Like, you know, there are multiple food companies out there, obviously, and what's palatable to one may not be palatable to another. And and maybe we have to try something else. Another sort of trick that I have found, a couple tricks, actually, I love the probiotics, like the powdered probiotics, because you can sprinkle those on there and they have a palate in them. I actually call the probiotic that we use in our household, I call it the ranch dressing, like put the ranch dressing on the food. It's, I don't want to eat a salad either, but if you put ranch on it, I'm probably going to eat it. So it does help with palatability. And then the other thing that I have discovered is there is a brand of vegan liquid smoke that doesn't contain onions or garlic. And so you can actually use it for patients on a hydrolyzed diet to increase the value of the food. And we've been using it probably for the last month or so in the clinic and they go bananas for it. They love it. So you just sprinkle a couple drops on there and just, it's totally within your hydrolyzed uh, formula. So it's totally fine. Oh my goodness. That's such a good trick. Oh, I'm going to hold on I to know. that one. Right? I know. It's great. That's great. And I want to ask you about something you said. You said you've been using it in the clinic. And so what about feeding animals in the clinic? Are you offering this food in the clinic or are you talking about using it and recommending it? We don't hospitalize anybody uh, at our at our office because it is behavior specialty only. But for those patients that are on a hydrolyzed formula, we have to stick with that for their treats and their training. And so oftentimes we'll use the cat food version of whatever hydrolyzed formula they're on. And then I can sprinkle that uh, liquid smoke on there and just really kind of up the value of those treats for them. There you go. Absolutely. Do you see any food aversions when you're using these types of diets in a clinic setting and then sending the animal home? Do they have any negative associations? It certainly could. Yeah, absolutely. If they're like, mm, I ate this when I was in the hospital, they just like hospital food to us. Like, ugh, probably not that terrible, but you don't feel good, you know? So right. it's very, very possible that that could occur. Yeah. It's like that one time I had to stop eating shrimp quesadillas for like a year. Oh yeah. That <laughs> happened with hot dogs with me. <laughs> I didn't eat them for years after that. 
Yes. Oh my gosh. There's something that'll just get you. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. we know holidays are coming up. I can't believe I'm saying that. I cannot believe it's the end of the year. This is wild and crazy, but certainly a stressful time for all of us, including our pets and especially those that are anxiety prone. So any tips for being proactive with nutritional management around the holidays? Yeah, it it can be really hard because, you know, food equals love in a lot of owners' eyes. And so they oftentimes, you know, will give them a little scrap from the dinner table or, you know, oh, let's get some stuffing and mashed potatoes in their diet later. But just knowing that, you know, a lot of dogs do have food sensitivities, especially to like turkey skin. And it's like, what do they call Friday? Like pancreatitis Friday in veterinary medicine, right? making sure that owners know what to avoid and maybe even doing like a little PSA on social media of like, Hey, you know, they may like Thanksgiving too, but they're not going to like the consequences of that. So what they can and cannot give as far as treats are concerned, managing the whole dinner table, counter surfing kind of thing through the use of baby aids or crating, making sure the animal is confinement trained, like When we eat in our household, my dogs go away because I have very tall dogs who very easily could get whatever they want off the counters if it smells delicious enough. And so we're just going to put them in their kennels and not have to worry about it. Absolutely. I'm thinking of a patient of mine who's also very tall and has multiple times eaten like entire turkeys off the counter. Yep, yep, exactly. If the motivation is enough, they're going to do it. You know, people will be like, I just want to train them to not jump on the counter. And I'm like, you have to put the food away first (laughs) because if the motivation is enough, they'll do it. Yes. Yeah. The the reward is there. They're going to, they're not really worried about the punishment. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Dr. Pike, as always, I, I love talking to you about nutrition and behavior and how they're so interwoven. I think it's just fascinating and hope to do it again because I learn so much every time. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Dr. Pike, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad that we were finally able to connect. And I know I took away a lot of clinical pearls to help pets dealing with various forms of stress. I want to say a huge thank you to Hills Pet Nutrition for making this episode possible. And of course, thanks to all of you out there for tuning in. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your insight on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. Truthfully, I have no idea how any of this works, but the powers that be behind the scene tells me that if you leave a five-star review, it'll help other veterinarians and veterinary professionals find our content. So if you have the time, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. 